You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Guys, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for being here at Midtown. Uh, Guys, we live in an envious culture. And if you want to see that fact clearly, all you need to do is listen to one of our great modern poets, Taylor Swift. Amen. Yep, there's a Swifty in here. I knew there'd be at least one of them. I know there's more of them that kept quiet. She wears short skirts, I wear t-shirts. She's cheer captain and I'm on the bleachers, dreaming about the day when you wake up and find that what you're looking for has been here the whole time. If you could see that I'm the one who understands you, been here all along, so why can't you see you belong with me. You belong with me. Yeah. I know it took, yeah, yeah. It took a lot out of the Swifties to not just stand up and start singing right away. And as catchy as one of T. Swift's earliest tracks was, have you looked closely at what the lyrics are saying? Look at what Taylor's saying. The stereotypical athlete stud muffin that she likes is in a relationship with a popular cheerleader girl that she clearly does not like. And she's not a fan of this situation. Her immediate response is envy. She not only longs to have what the other girl has, but she longs for the other girl not to have what she has. She's longing for her benefit and the downfall of her enemy. You belong to me. Yeah. Her upbeat and poppy melody hides a really dark and pervasive desire. And sometimes our (laughs) pop music, sometimes our pop music is even less subtle than that. How about Nick Jonas? He just came right out and said it, right? He wrote a song literally entitled Jealous. The music video has 202 million views, and the chorus goes like this. It's my right to get hellish. I still get jealous. It's my right to be hellish. Envy is my right. I deserve what someone else has. I deserve to wish for or create the downfall of the other person who has what I want. I deserve those things, and they definitely don't deserve them. And while most of us, I don't think, are caught up in like the romantic drama of the rich and famous in our world, there's a reason those songs resonate with us. It's because all of us, in our own ways, struggle with envy. All of us have moments, or even entire seasons of our lives, where some overwhelming desire to have the qualities or possessions of someone else overcomes us. And it creates a resentment in us, oftentimes, towards those who have those things. And then we live in a world that constantly reinforces that trend. Envy is actually the default posture of our entire Western American society. It's the default posture of our marketing. Every advertisement you see is built on a two-part formula. Part one, create a thought that indicates that your life is currently not satisfactory. And then part two, convince you that your life will be made satisfactory if you obtain that thing. In other words, marketers are constantly asking, how can we create thoughts of envy in people, feelings of envy in people, so that they will rush out and buy the thing that we want to sell them? That's marketing 101. Take a marketing class in college, that's what they're going to teach you to do. And the results is that thousands of times every day, we are shown the lives of beautiful people that we want to have for ourselves. And we can have those beautiful lives if we just switch to Old Spice Body Wash. Or if we just start eating Ghirardelli chocolate. Or if we drive a Hyundai. Or if we get the new iPhone because it comes in green. Or whatever. 
And you actually don't have to take my word for this as a pastor railing against marketers talk about this. There's a guy named Paul Mazur, who's one of the founders of modern marketing here in America. 100 years ago, he said this. We must shift America from a needs to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire, to want new things, read to envy, even before the old had been entirely consumed. Man's desires must overshadow his needs. And it's not just our marketing that's doing that to us, you guys. It's also the default posture of our social media. In the last decade, scientists have developed a term to describe some of the predominant effects of social media on us. The term is Facebook envy. And even though Facebook is defunct, it's applied to all sorts of social media. The average American today spends 2.5 hours a day on social media. That adds up over the course of a year to more than a month of time. The average American spends more than a month of their year on social media. And that practice means we're constantly comparing our ordinary moments to the filtered and extraordinary moments of others. That's how social media often works. Think about it in your own life. When you're scrolling through social media, what are you usually doing while you scroll? You're usually in the middle of some mundane, ordinary task. Eating, laying in bed, waiting on a bus, sitting on the toilet. I don't know, right, what you do. And then in the middle of all of that ordinary, mundane, tedious activity, what are you being fed? The latest friend's vacation to immaculate Hawaii with sunsets that are definitely not filtered. Right? Or the latest family photos showing kids that are perfectly dressed and well-behaved because that's how their family always works. Right? Or the person who just got married and is only ever always happy with their new spouse. You guys, we are people on average who spend a month of our year, our ordinary year, staring at extraordinary moments of other people, and then we wonder why our lives don't feel satisfactory. We wonder why we feel like we haven't reached our potential. We wonder why we feel like we're missing out. Envy is being reinforced in us everywhere we look. And it's happening in the wealthiest country that's ever existed in world history. We have less to envy than ever, and yet we're trained to envy. Never before have so many had so much and still wanted more. Thanks, Ian. That was good. I like that. And when we live long enough in that sort of world, when we spend enough time envying in this way, it has devastating effects on our lives. There's a few scholars that wrote back in 2018 in a journal called Social Science and Medicine. They studied 18,000 randomly selected individuals, and they found that their experience of envy was a predictor of worse mental health and well-being in the future. And then the University of Rochester Medical Center has directly correlated envy and jealousy to increased risk for heart disease and cancer. There's a guy named uh, Dr. Frank John Ninavaji who wrote about this in his book, Learned Mindfulness. He said, discussing envy is akin to treading on a territory of unseen warfare. Hidden, improvised, explosive devices abound. This volatile sensitivity attests to why envy may be of titanic relevance in human psychology. We have become sick with envy. And it's not just our bodies that are feeling that. It's our souls as well. Envy is turning us into destructive sorts of people. It makes us destructive to others because envy is directly connected to things like animosity and anger and resentment toward our neighbor. And it also makes us self-destructive because implicit oftentimes in our envy is a feeling of inferiority, insecurity. We don't feel like our lives are good enough. It makes us self-destructive. And it's also destructive in our relationship with God. Because God has designed us to be people of peace, of contentment. We're satisfied deeply in his love. 
And we can never be satisfied in his love now if we're always looking for the next thing, if we're always trying to take something from someone. Envy destroys our souls. There's a great theologian named John Chrysostom who put it this way. He said, as a moth gnaws a garment, so does envy consume a person. Our envious culture is leading us into physical, emotional, and spiritual oblivion, and we are in need of a cure to our sickness. We're continuing in a teaching series here at Midtown entitled uh, Character Matters. We're going through the book of 1 Samuel together, and we're examining the ways in which the stories in this book teach us about what it looks like to be people of character in the world. People who are transformed by God and embody that transformed way of living to the world. And today, we get a powerful story about envy. And this story teaches us three main things about the topic of envy. We're going to see this in the dialogues and happenings between Saul, David, and Jonathan. The story teaches us these three things. The anatomy of envy, the symptoms of envy, and the cure for envy. It's anatomy, it's symptoms, and it's cure. So friends, if you have a Bible, uh, open it with me. We're going to be reading from 1 Samuel chapter 18. If you're flipping in your Bibles, that is near the beginning. So start at the beginning and flip your way to 1 Samuel chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, that's okay. Uh, the words are going to be behind me on the screen, so you can follow along there. 1 Samuel 18, starting in verse 1. When David had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was bound to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that he was wearing and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. As a result, Saul set him over the army. And all the people, even the servants of Saul, approved. And as they were coming home, when David returned from killing the Philistine, the women came out of all the towns of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they made merry, Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And Saul was very angry, for this saying displeased him. He said, they've ascribed to David tens of thousands, and to me they've ascribed thousands? What more can he have but the kingdom? And so Saul eyed David from that day on. And the next day, an evil spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul threw the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David, because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And David marched out and came in leading the army. And David had success in all of his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. When Saul, when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for it was he who marched out and came in leading them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We kick off this story here in chapter 18 with a time of celebration. In the chapter just before this, which we read last week, David had the courage to stand up when no one else would stand up against Goliath, the famous story of David and Goliath, where he defeats the champion of the Philistines and becomes the champion for his people. It's a massive victory that was snatched from the jaws of defeat. No one was going to stand up, and David stands up, trusting in the Lord to deliver. 
And so from that time forward, Saul doesn't really have much of a choice but to keep giving David opportunities to lead. He does, and David becomes renowned for his leadership, for his courage. And then, after giving more and more success to David and seeing him lead more and more success, they return home. And they return home to a victory parade. Think confetti and music and floats and the rest. The text says, women came out of all the towns of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, with musical instruments. We've got us a rager in Israel. And so chapter 18 kicks off as a gleeful and happy story, but it doesn't stay that way for long. Which actually teaches us an important point right off the bat about envy here. Sometimes occasions for celebration can also be occasions for great envy. We need to look out for that in our lives. Sometimes parades are invitations for rain clouds. And that's what we see in Saul here. His response to the celebration of Israel as they return home exposes to us the anatomy of envy. What makes up Saul's envy? We see it expressed in verses 7 and 9. Do you notice Saul's response? The women are singing that Saul killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. But the text says Saul was very angry for the saying displeased him. He said, they've ascribed to David tens of thousands and to me only thousands. What more could he have now but the kingdom itself? And so Saul eyed David from this point forward. In those three short verses, we're actually shown this really nuanced and layered description of the anatomy of envy. What it's made up of, what it's composed of. There's three different things we see in Saul here. We see comparison, we see craving, and we see bitterness. Comparison, craving, and bitterness. Envy starts with comparing your life and identity to others, and that leads you to crave what others have and become bitter towards them because they have it. It starts with comparing your life and identity to others. It leads you to crave what they have and makes you bitter towards them because of what they have. And each of those components are true for Saul here. First, you see comparison. Saul takes issue with the fact that these women are singing about David's ten thousands while only singing about his thousands. And take a step back and think what's actually going on here. Is Saul getting overlooked? No. Saul's actually not getting overlooked. This isn't unfair at all. He's actually been pretty successful. Both he and David are returning to Israel victorious in different roles. Saul's a commander and David's the warrior. The women go out to greet Saul with the celebration. They're celebrating Saul here. And on top of that, in ancient Hebrew poetry, what you often find in songs like this is escalating verse. There's one line and then another verse that escalates beyond that line or says the same sort of thing in a new way. Many scholars think that they weren't actually trying to create a hierarchy between David and Saul. They're just celebrating the width and the breadth of this victory. It actually wasn't a reflection on Saul's identity at all. It was actually a celebration of Saul, which exposes something really important when we get to comparing in our lives. See, Saul's envy isn't that people have overlooked him or that he doesn't have credit. The problem is that David's popularity and success are seen as a threat to his identity. That's the problem with envy. It's not that we don't have enough. It's that other, we view ourselves in light of other people and our insecurity and identity get changed because of it. Envy has very little to do with what we've accomplished or obtained or even what others have accomplished or obtained. It's actually about a fundamental orientation of our hearts that sees ourselves as in some way incomplete or inferior or less than. Saul's problem is not that he hasn't been successful enough. It's that he can only see his identity in light of someone else. He can only see his identity in light of David. And so envy is not actually a problem of possessions. 
It's a problem of identity. It's fundamentally self-hatred. It's rooted in our inferiority. And there's actually a, a study out of UC San Diego that illustrated this really recently. The study actually kind of examined what people report about envy and who they envy in their lives. And what they found is that when people have envious feelings, they're primarily experienced towards people of the same gender within five years on either side of their age. That's the people we most envy. You don't often envy people who aren't like you. Why? Well, because your identity is in that moment being compared to the identity of someone else. And their success is a reflection on you in some way. It is your insecurity, it is your inferiority that is driving you to that sort of action. It actually has very little to do with that other person. It has everything to do with our own hearts. And so an easy starting point to diagnosing envy is to start with how we respond to the celebrations of others. Does that person's celebration make you angry? Does that person's success make you feel like a failure? Do you feel compelled to rain on someone else's parade? So comparison, that's the first thing we see in Saul. Crucial part of envy. But the anatomy keeps going. We also see that envy involves craving. The text tells us that Saul eyed David here. And the idea is that he can't help but be consumed with wanting what David has. He can't stop viewing his own life through the prism of David's life. He craves what David has. And that ultimately makes Saul unable to be content in his own life. He's unable to be content with what he has. He's unable to be content with the praise that people are heaping upon him because he needs what David has. He's craving beyond what he has. And that exposes something important to us as well. Our envy is always directly connected to our idols. What you envy exposes what's most important to you. Your envy will always reveal your God. So if you envy someone else's looks, you've probably made beauty a God in your life. If you envy a marriage, you've probably made intimate relationship in some way a God in your life. If you envy someone else's accomplishments, you've probably made success a God in your life. And that leads us to another important point. What causes envy in someone else may not cause envy in me, and vice versa. Envy is directly connected to what I have elevated and prioritized most. As an example, in my own life, I've never been somebody who has particularly been envious of like really amazing cars or homes. I grew up in a pretty humble home, and I appreciate them. They're beautiful and amazing, but I've never thought, man, I want that, and I'm going to commit myself to that. I don't envy that as much, but... When someone around my age has published a book, or when someone else's ministry has blossomed in a way that I would love mine to, or when their accomplishments seem to outweigh mine, my shadow side starts to take over in me. I can start to think negatively about myself. I can start to think that I'm not good enough. I can start to think that they don't deserve those things and that I really do because I've done things the right way and because I'm smarter and because... See how quickly we get off track? Suddenly, my mind and heart are off into dark places saying things that are radically untrue and things I often don't believe. Friends, if you want to see the unhealthy gods in your life, think about what you envy most. And then finally, the third part of the anatomy of envy here, it's bitterness. Saul's actions throughout the rest of the passage reveal this. And not only does he crave what David has, he wants to destroy David because of what he has. He tries to kill David at every turn. And that actually continues to escalate over the course of the book. 
His envy starts as like some bitter thoughts, but then he starts to rave and he gets mad and he grabs a spear and throws it at him. He eventually runs David out of town and hunts him down in the hills of Israel. See, envy doesn't just desire to have things. It also desires for the rivals not to have things. Envy is both self-elevation and others' degradation. And it tries to turn life into a zero-sum game. If I can't have it, no one can. We experience inferiority or pain when someone else gains something, and in order to try to resolve those hard feelings, we try to spoil what they have or destroy what they have or devalue what they have or undermine what they have. Envy rejoices in the weeping of others and weeps at the rejoicing of others. There's a great poem by a French author named Victor Hugo who illustrates this really cleverly, I think. The poem is literally called Envy and Greed. In it, he introduces us to two sisters named Envy and Greed. And those two sisters are walking along the road together when suddenly a magical god appears before them. The god's name is Desire. And Desire says that the first sister, between envy and greed, to wish for something will have their wish granted. But whatever they wish for, double will be given to their sister. Now for greed, that's really difficult. She she wants to wish for great riches and crowns, but she knows that she's only going to feel more greedy because her sister's going to get double what she has, and so she's hesitant to make a wish. But envy doesn't delay at all. She looks at greed with a sneer, and then she looks at desire, and she speaks her wish. I wish to be blind in one eye. I want to see the downfall of my sister. It doesn't matter if I gain, I just need to see them suffer. That's what envy looks like. It's bitter. It's resentful. It becomes consumed with seeing others brought down to our level. The great author Frederick Buechner put it really cleverly when he said, envy is the consuming desire to have everybody else be as unsuccessful as you are. So that's the anatomy of envy, friends. It's rooted in comparison and inferiority. It craves and becomes bitter towards other people. But the story doesn't stop there. There's also a lot that we learn about the symptoms of envy, what it actually does in us. That's what it looks like, but what does it do? We see two things in this passage. First, envy only ever steals from us. It never gives us anything. That's what happens to Saul in the passage. An evil spirit rushes upon him. He raves madly. He becomes paranoid. The symptoms are only ever negative. They're never positive. And that's a really unique part of envy. Out of most of our human vices, envy is one of the few that never actually gives us anything to begin with. Look at the seven deadly sins, right? Many of those sins actually at the beginning feel pretty good. Take gluttony, right? Gluttony feels great at first until consequences set in, right? Wrath or anger feels awesome at first until consequences set in. But not envy. Envy sucks from the get-go. Envy makes you miserable from day one because it only ever makes you discontent with what you have. It only ever steals joy. Think about it. In your life, you can be perfectly content with your salary until you find out what that person makes. You can be perfectly content with your success and work until you find out how successful that person is. You can be perfectly content with your spouse or your family life until you see their spouse or their family life. Envy ultimately only ever steals, only ever robs us. And it's not just robbing us individually, it's also robbing us of actual community with other people, of celebrating with people when they celebrate. Envy will never allow us to take joy when other people have joy and to grieve when other people grieve. 
it undermines our communal way of living. It undermines us from loving our neighbors well. A doctor I mentioned earlier continues in his book, Learn Mindfulness. He says, envy senses no pleasure, satisfaction, joy, or glee. Only the mental pain of absence, privation, and unbearable intolerance needing deletion. And Joseph Epstein wrote a book on envy, and he put it simply, of the seven deadly sins, only envy is no fun at all. So envy steals from us, but it also expands and grows in us. Saul's rage in this passage keeps expanding. It starts small, but it becomes more and more murderous. And we're going to see that over the coming chapters. David has to flee from Saul because his envy drives him towards uglier and uglier things. Friends, envy is never just a little desire here or there. It's never just a small and harmless longing for more. It is a cancer. And it will spread if we don't treat it. You always start by doing a little envy, but eventually envy does you. It takes you over, and soon all of your behaviors start to radiate from this. Now, there's a Catholic prayer book I was digging into this week that I think illustrates the ways that envy radiates through much of our lives. And these questions were convicting to me in many ways. They might be to you as well. But this is a way to show us these 10 questions that I'm going to ask. This is a way to show us how envy leaks into all of the different areas of our lives. Question number one, do you feel offended at the talents, successes, or good fortune of others? Do you feel selfish or unnecessary rivalry and competition? Do you feel pleasure at other people's difficulties and distresses? Do you feel ill will towards others? Do you read false motives into the behaviors of others? Do you belittle others? Do you make false accusations against others? Do you gossip or slander or bully others? Do you carry a prejudice against those whom you feel to be inferior? Do you have anger towards those whose talent or work might threaten your security or position? Friends, when we don't name envy, when we don't recognize its role in our lives, it will leak into all sorts of stuff like this, and it will quickly consume everything we do. It will anxiously press in on our hearts and minds. It will lead us to constant discontent. It will poison us. All right, so that's the bad news, right? And this should make all of us in the room start to ask, okay, what's the cure, right? What can I do about this sort of thing in my life? How do we heal? And the story actually points us to what healing might look like when it comes to envy. We see healing, uh, healing force, in the character of Jonathan in this story. In the first few verses of this passage, we read Jonathan responds to David's success in a radically different way. Instead of responding with envy, it says he takes off his robe that he's wearing and gives it to David. And then he takes off his armor, his sword, his bow, and his belt and gives all of those things to David as well. Now, all of those items were actually markers of Jonathan's right to the throne. He's the son of the king. That was his royal robe. It signified that he was the heir to Saul's throne. Jonathan is willingly giving up his position of prestige in order to elevate his friend. And his sword and his armor, those are signifiers of Jonathan's uh, ability to make himself vulnerable before David. Sword is what you use to defend yourself. And he's saying, I give that up. I give over this. In the ancient Near Eastern context, he's essentially saying, I will willingly serve you. I will make myself vulnerable before you and serve you to see you elevated. And that's a remarkable contrast to Saul, right? Which is interesting, 
The same thing is happening. David is clearly backed by God in some way. Both men see it in the story. They see that the kingdom of God is coming through David. But they respond in radically different ways. They're looking at the same truth, and one of them envies, and the other one serves, empties himself of his position. And the text tells us that Jonathan was led to do this because he loved David. He loved his friend deeply. And that love is what motivated him to step off the throne of his life. That's what motivated him to choose to become a servant to his friend. That's what motivated him to elevate his friend. Love. Love. Radical love is the only thing that can overcome envy. And when we hear that word love in our culture, it often can conjure up certain images in our mind that are actually, I think, pretty distant from Jonathan's love here. See, in our culture, we often define love as a hunger for envy. Enhancement, as Tim Keller put it. We oftentimes consider what love looks like only when we see someone else that we want to bring into our lives to enhance or to make us greater. We see someone who has characteristics or beauty or attractiveness that we want in our lives. And so we say we love them because we want them to come into our lives to enhance us, to improve us, to make us greater or better. Love, oftentimes in our culture, has more to do with the arrival of someone in my life and what they can bring to me. I want what they have, and I want that to benefit me. Their beauty, their attraction, their wealth, their attention. But notice something really subtle about that picture of love, if that's what love is for us. It's actually envious. It's saying, I want or even need this thing in my life to enhance me, and I will not rest until you belong to me. It's saying that my current life is not good enough and I need to grasp after this thing in order to be good enough. We say silly things like, you complete me. That sounds romantic at first, but it's actually really unhealthy because it's making envious attraction, envious attention, a virtue. And that's not at all what Jonathan is doing here. Notice that he loves David and that love actually causes him to give things up for David. Jonathan's life gets worse from this point on doesn't get better. This love of David will cost him dearly. It will cost him his livelihood. It will cost him his inheritance. It will cost him his position. It eventually costs him his life. He's not doing this so that David and David's traits can come into his life and benefit him. That's not the motivation. See, according to the Bible, real love is always opposed to envy. That's why, in that passage we read to start our time together, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 says, love does not envy. Real love never says, I need you on my terms to enter my life and enhance me. Real love says, instead, I will choose to find my joy in your joy. I will choose to give up so that you can flourish. I will find my flourishing in your flourishing. Real love will always place our own well-being and happiness in the well-being and happiness of others. Rebecca DeYoung puts it this way in her book, Glittering Vices. She says, the fundamental attitude of the envious is directly opposed to love. To love is to seek others' good and rejoice when they have it. To envy is to seek to destroy others' good and sorrow over their having it. That's what Jonathan is illustrating for us, is a cure to envy. But it's also a challenge, because that sort of love is really hard. Can I really celebrate as much if someone else gets what I want as if I got what I wanted? Can I really celebrate with those people? Can I really not Uh, have any sort of feelings of envy towards them when they get what I want? It's a hard thing. How do we do that? 
Well, Jonathan, I think, points again to the answer for us. Look again at Jonathan, what he's doing. He's emptying himself of his glory as king. He's making himself a servant to one who does not have the right to be king. He's making himself vulnerable to his friend. And he does all of that so that he might lift up the other. Does that sound like anyone you know? It sounds a lot like Jesus to me. We always talk about how some of these Old Testament figures in theology kind of point forward to Jesus as the ultimate culmination of them. Jesus, in many ways, is the true Jonathan. See, Jesus looked upon the world. He looked upon every single one of us. And he said, I love you. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've failed to do. And because I love you, I find my joy in your joy. And I don't want to be the only beloved child in the universe of God. I want all people to know and be transformed by God's deep and profound love for them. So I will become low in order to elevate you. I will take the position of a servant so that you can become a ruler. I will give up everything. And I will take on all the consequences of your envy, the punishment and pain of your envy, so that you can experience deep belovedness. Paul seems to pick up on this idea in Philippians 2. He says, Christ did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, assuming human likeness. And being found in the appearance of a human, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is the true Jonathan for each and every one of us. What Jonathan did for David, Jesus has done for every person in this room and outside this room. His life, death, and resurrection are the ultimate picture of this sort of love. And it's only when we see that picture, it's only when we let that picture sink into the cracks and crevices of our broken hearts that we can become the sort of people who sacrificially love and overcome envy. It's only when we are infused with the love of Jesus and allow that to guide everything we do that envy can really be defeated. Because once you recognize that you have a glorious inheritance that lasts forever, all the other stuff your envy is going to fade away. All the other stuff is going to matter much, much less because you know that what you have is radically greater than anything else you'd long for. Friends, the cure for our envy isn't getting more of the things that we envy. And it's not seeing other people stripped of the things we envy. It's recognizing what Jesus has done for all of us in love. It's allowing the vision of Christ to shape how we love others. How we seek to find our joy in their joy. Our peace in their peace. So as we move towards the table today, would you gaze upon the work of Christ with me? Would you leave all of your envy at the cross of Christ and would you let him simply wash you in his love again today? Would you allow him to transform you this morning? Because that's what true love does. It transforms and it destroys our envy. Let's pray, friends. Father, we come before you as people who know so often we're trained to envy. Our culture is constantly telling us that we need more, that our lives are not good enough, and that we need to eat the rich, and we need to remove all of those things that they have so that we can have them. And if nobody can have them, so be it. And we know that can drive so many of our behaviors so often. We know that it can lead us to decay. And so we pray that your spirit would open up, illuminate for us in our hearts the things that need to be illuminated. That you would warm our icy hearts. That you would melt them. 
You would show us the ways that we are maybe not trusting in our identity, which is eternally secure in you. And would you remind us that you are gracious, that we can come to you and be transformed today with whatever is making our hearts icy, whatever is causing us to envy in our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name.